The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and Pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. Father, I thought we could start tonight with a question concerning wills, and specifically uh, we had a viewer interested in uh, the question of what should a traditional Catholic consider when they're preparing their will? Well, they have to consider, um, you know, the people they want to provide for, obviously, right? And uh, they should provide not only for the material needs of others, but also uh, they should think about those who have a claim to their support, right? So uh, there, are, there are those who we really are bound, morally bound in justice to provide for. And so we should think about that, and we should uh, obviously think about what assets we have to, to will them. Okay? Um, we should uh, think about their souls more than even necessarily providing for their material wants as well. Which means that in a will, generally someone should consider uh, supporting the spiritual work of the Church, too. Missionary effort of the Church, and uh, and so... Uh, it's it's a matter of being mindful of one's obligations. Uh, as we go through life, we accumulate things, and they have more or less value. Um, in terms of the material value of things, we should um, therefore think about it in terms of our of our moral responsibility before God. So it might actually be a good idea for someone, a Catholic, a traditional Catholic, making a will who might have questions about uh, his or her moral obligation to provide for children and uh, brothers and sisters or, or even a well, spouse, obviously. I'll start there. And, uh, and even parents, you know. Uh, if they, if one person has a question about that, they might want to talk to the parish priest and ask him about the morality of uh, making provisions for those who depend upon them. Um, <clears throat> this, I think, a lot of this has to do with um, common sense. Uh, but one would want to think long and hard about this. Uh, an alternative would be naming an executor of the will. Uh, giving the executive, executive uh, power to someone you trust in order to disperse the assets to those in need, right? So someone might actually name an executor who they trust and then give them a set of directions as to how they want um, everything applied. Um, and uh, another aspect of the whole thing has to do with sacramentals. Uh, the Catholics who are making the will don't always think about this, but often they have blessed objects, I mean even rosaries and statues and so on. Uh, 
and uh, they want to make sure that they simply are not uh, thrown in the dumpster, uh, like some Novus Ordo Church back in the 1970s or 80s that just took the sacramentals and threw them out in the dumpsters, smashed them to bits. You know, um, a traditional Catholic would would have to be more thoughtful than that. So rather than pass these things on to, let's say, fallen away Catholics uh, who are relatives, they, they should pr make provision in the will for all the, the blessed spiritual items going to the church or going to one of the priests or convent or something <clears throat> where they'll be taken care of and respected. You know? um, Obviously, there, there should be a certain amount of provision made, I think, for having Masses offered for their own soul. So they would want to put away um, uh, stipends, perhaps, you know, make an offering of stipends to the Church. Um, we've had people who have uh, made such provisions even bef before their deaths, obviously, and not just waiting for the will to be read. Um, because, that, you know, probate can take quite a while. Paying off the, the outstanding debts and so on, and uh, seeing what's left to be dispersed and so on, that can take the courts quite a while. So, um, <clears throat> it's important to, um, uh, even before one is passed away, to make provisions if there's going to be Gregorian Masses offered for them by arranging that with the seminary priests or with one of the, the priests in the local parish uh, to um, have that all set for, for, their, for their passing. Um, there's also um, the matter of... Um, yeah, I, guess, I guess we have to think in terms of outstanding debts that not necessarily are recorded. For example, if... Uh, a person were to die and know that he or he, she has certain debts that have to be paid off. They may not be credit card debt, which is, there's a legal record of that. It may not be outstanding bills that are owed. But if a person has a debt that is unpaid, even as a private loan that they borrowed or whatever, they should think in terms of making sure that their obligations, their moral obligations are met there too. Um, Things that otherwise even probate would not be provided for, mm -hmm. uh, that they should they're aware of these obligations and they should ever endeavor to meet them. Uh, there's something more important than the will. Um, there are certain things that can't be provided in the will, and that is any outstanding uh, scandal that they've caused, any damage they've done, any apologies they owe. Um, they really should make the effort to take care of those now here and uh, not have to deal with it in purgatory. So um, if they fear that they've given scandal to anyone, uh, that's not something you can take care of in a will necessarily or by material, you know, material reward. So this is something spiritual that, that the person should do for his own soul and the souls of other people to try to uh, compensate others by a good example, whereas in the past they might have set a bad example. Mm -hmm. This might involve apologies, and, uh, and uh, it might involve, uh, uh, you know, any, just contacting people 
um, who are their victims. And maybe, maybe they've held a grudge, a grudge against someone. Uh, our Lord tells us that we will be forgiven as we are willing to forgive. And so there are certain things that a person in the face of death and judgment and heaven or hell uh, should take care of, even beyond the legal documentation. Um, there's also the matter, by the way, outside of the will, uh, with regard to one's own obsequies, uh, burial. Um, if if one has a traditional Catholic family, um, then that gives that individual some hope that they will be provided with a traditional Catholic funeral mass, traditional Catholic burial. But uh, if one does not have this, well, even if one has traditional Catholic relatives, but one has others who are not, you know, when they die or when they become gravely ill and can't answer for themselves, sometimes it starts a battle among the family members. So how are we going to dispose of the remains of, of Uncle Joe, you know? And um, sometimes, even if you do have traditional Catholic family, they're overmatched by the non, uh, non-Catholics who just want to have something simple and uh, and that doesn't trouble them, it doesn't cost them. So those who have, have any reason to doubt that they will, that their relatives will stand up and assure them, guarantee them of a traditional Catholic funeral burial, of a tra- traditional Catholic funeral mass, uh, they should actually go to a funeral home and make prior arrangements and have it all mapped out with a funeral home as to ex- exactly what they want such that if they were to be taken to the hospital, um, uh, there would be a notification going to the parish, not through the funeral home necessarily, but uh, through someone who who is going to be aware of the fact that they are in the funeral home, that they are rather in the hospital, and will contact the local priest, the traditional priest, and make sure that he gets there to... Uh, anoint them, at least to inform him that they are in the hospital. It might be that someone would have no family member he could count on doing that. He might simply have to ask a neighbor, you know, if an ambulance comes to my home and takes me away, I'm going to ask you to be sure and find out where I'm going and call this number and let the priest know. I mean, it might even come to that with some people. Uh, But the important thing is to designate somebody who's going to, you know, be aware and to contact the priest. Um, there's, there's even a case of uh, a burial proxy where a person who is all alone and has no one they can trust to guarantee there'll be a traditional Catholic funeral that uh, in very, the various states one can obtain a burial proxy form and designate an individual of the decedent's choice to uh, handle all the funeral arrangements with them it might even be necessary to go to the funeral home, find a funeral director, <clears throat> pay them in advance, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad idea anyway. You know, so <laughs> the relatives are absolved of that responsibility, and therefore they're also somewhat absolved of any control. You know, that would challenge the wish will of the person who's deceased, and uh, one could uh, hypothetically 
even named the funeral director as the burial proxy to make the decision. Or a traditional Catholic member of the family who has legal control over the burial, over the funeral as well. So there are various ways that a traditional Catholic can safeguard uh, not only the distribution of the goods of the earth that he's acquired over the years to make sure they get to those who really deserve them, need them, and for whom he's morally responsible to provide. But there's also, there are ways that he can legally provide for himself as well to make sure that he's going to have a traditional Catholic burial, mm-hmm. traditional Catholic funeral mass, <clears throat> the rosary at the, and, and so on offered at the funeral. All of those things can be prearranged, and they mm-hmm. should be. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good point to mention that about uh, providing for yourself as far as having masses uh, set for yourself after your death or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember there's a particularly striking verse in the Imitation of Christ when he says, essentially to um, you know take care of, of, of your life now don't expect anyone to pray mm-hmm. for you after you die mm-hmm. because uh, you'll, you'll very quickly be forgotten by your friends and your family so mm-hmm. don't don't be counting on that don't be depending mm-hmm. on that but I thought that was well you know it is so true uh, it's hard for us to grasp this but how many of us are even aware of the names of our great great grandparents mm-hmm. our names of the names and the history of where they uh, anything that they've done. Uh, how many even know where they're buried, our great-great-grandparents? You know, uh, A generation uh, from now, um, you know, well, I will largely be forgotten. There'll be a handful of people who remain. But when the generation passes who would have personally known me, they're not going to be many people know that. How many of us even have holy cards dating back to the 1930s and 40s from people who passed away, and we don't know anything about them. Yeah. And were it not for that holy card as a little memorial, we would never even think or even know to pray for them. It's amazing how the so-called sands of time <laughs> just cover us right over, mm-hmm. and and we move, and the next generation and the generation after that, we just moves on, right? Yeah. Our um, our memories are very short, mm-hmm. and uh, the. Um, but we leave behind, uh, even even if we leave behind buildings and bridges named after us. I mean, how many people go across the Gothel's Bridge and and even, no, well, who is this? What does this even mean? We're Roebling. I mean, you know, the Roebling Bridge here in Cincinnati area. I mean, how many even think about that? It's the name of a bridge. It's the name of a person? You don't know much about the person. Uh, how many would even think of praying for that person? You know, So having skyscrapers named after you is no guarantee of anything. Uh, having streets named after you, it means nothing. People don't think of, that's the name of a street, that's not, not the name of a person who once lived and, and died here. And, uh, so when we're dead to the world, we really are dead to the world. And uh, you're right, we have to um, do what we can now and not wait later to, to, do, uh, to do what we can as the years wear on. We have to do the good we can right now and then not expect others to do it for us mm-hmm. by praying for us necessarily. We hope they will, but uh, we can't uh, just simply put the burden on them because they'll have enough burdens without, sure. without that. 
Father, a related question to this topic of, of wills, and that is, how do you feel about this this DNR, this do not resuscitate label, where uh, if something happens to someone, they'll have this do not resuscitate label applied to them, and where they'll just leave them and just let them die. How do you feel about that? Well, it can be murder. It can be. It's not necessarily murder. Mm -hmm. But it can well be murder, and I'm sure there are cases where uh, there is actual institutionalized murder going on right now uh, in nursing homes and hospitals and so on. Uh, there's an incentive, actually, uh, to, to commit murder, although they, would they will not acknowledge that it would be. Um, they've come up with a concept of brain death, and that is kind of flexible um, insofar as it, it allows one legally to... Uh, keep one alive uh, on the ventilator um, and keep the heart going so that one can actually uh, open up a person's body and remove their living organs for transplant. Now that we have the technology to do all of these things, <clears throat> the incentive is there. Not only because uh, we can use a person's fresh organs to help another person, but there's a lot of money involved in this. I mean, it's a big business here. And uh, so those incentives can be uh, very venal, you know. <laughs> and the fact is, though, you, you cannot kill one person to save another. It's still murder. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there was a big scandal that went on in, in, up in Cleveland uh, a few, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now as to whether those whose bodies were being mined for organs were actually medically dead. Of course, being medically dead, well, that's a human definition, and who knows if that really is death. We define death as the, um, the separation of the soul from the body. And uh, we know that the soul uh, takes a certain amount of time, depending on the condition of the body, to depart fully depart from the body which even allows us to anoint people who are, let's say, clinically dead, <clears throat> um, according to brainwave function and so on, because we know that the soul and the body are not entirely parted from each other. Now, theologians discuss whether it's two hours or four hours or six hours, again, depending on the condition of the body. But the principle is there, and the Church has, in fact, endorsed that principle, uh, that the body does not uh, give up the soul immediately. But, nonetheless, um, when, we, when we talk about clinical death, uh, we have to be careful about who's making that definition and who, who decides the parameters, um, who, de who decides when somebody is clinically dead, whether the soul is still there. I mean, if, if the body is still uh, on the ventilator and, uh, and is breathing, even with help, the heart is still beating, uh, you have a person who's not dead. Uh, the soul is still there. <clears throat> and um, you simply, you know, one other aspect of this whole thing is they're doing exactly that. They're, they're going in for the organs while this is going on. The body is still breathing, albeit with the help of a machine, right? And uh, the heart is still, still beating to the still circulation. And uh, without any thought of anesthetic 
or anything to relieve the person of pain, they're actually going in and cutting them open and then removing the organs. Uh, certainly a, a scene right out of some, you know, great B-horror movie. Um, there, there have been cases where people were being prepped for just such an operation when they came, when they, somebody revived. What a horrible idea that is. So, um, as I say, it can be extremely evil to use the technology we have, um, even if we convince ourselves there's a good purpose to save someone else's life, it still comes down to murdering another person. However, okay, we, we, we have to realize that um, it's necessary to... Um, there's a big difference between prolonging someone's death and prolonging someone's life. Okay? Um, to terminate a person's life, an innocent life, uh, is murder. If one takes direct action to terminate the life of one person who is innocent uh, and is not subject, for, for example, to the sentence of condemnation because of some crime that he's committed, um, that is murder. And uh, it is a grave, grave crime against God and man. But it can happen that because, again, of the technology that we have now, we can actually just be prolonging someone's death when the body actually is trying to die, as it were. When God is calling that person for judgment, <clears throat> and the body is clearly shutting down. Um, is it medical treatment to give someone nutrition and hydration, to give them uh, food and water? No, it's not medical treatment. Uh, per se, it's a matter of just giving them the necessities of life. And if they can take nutrition and hydration and benefit from it, in itself, if that preserves life, that cannot be denied um, without grave sin. You can starve someone to death or dehydrate someone to death, as they did with, with Terry Scheifel. I mean, that's just a clear case of murder. They executed her. Uh, they directly caused her death by withholding the things she needed to live. I mean, what's the difference in that and, and shoving a pillow over her face and, and suffocating her to death, you know? <clears throat> so, um, uh, that's why, you know, when uh, certain so-called traditional priests of the Took line are saying that it was perfectly justified for them to do that to Terry Scheigel, it's absolutely horrific. It's horrible to hear them say that. But then if they can justify the took line, I guess they can find ways to justify just about almost anything. Um, uh, so they terminated her life. You know, she was very much alive, and they just put her to death before the world. Um, but for, take, for example, the case of someone whose body is trying to shut down, trying to die, trying to give up the soul. And where you can continue uh, pumping nutrition into them, but the body cannot process it. And you can continue uh, pumping, as it were, hydration into them, liquids into them, but again, their bodies cannot process that anymore. And they're just bloating and they're... Uh, well, there you're not, you're not promoting uh, life. You're, 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 in a sense, uh, prolonging their deaths by doing that. And there's uh, sometimes a fine line, but sometimes a very definite line between the two that is rather obvious. So one has to be careful not to abuse our modern technology uh, 
to murder somebody for the sake of uh, you know some temporal gain like um, uh, money, <laughs> uh, selling organs, and not for the sake even of saving somebody else's life. Because you can't murder one to save another. But we also have to be wary of using technology to inflict greater pain and suffering and hardship on someone who really needs to die in the sense that they, their body is, is, in a sense, dying naturally. And uh, there's no benefit whatsoever from treatments that we can give them. They may be painful, they may be expensive, they may, as I say, simply prolong their deaths. In which case, there is no benefit to them. It actually uh, puts them at, at risk. And, you know, Tom, by putting someone in that position, uh, you might even be setting them up for despair. If they're putting them through a grave hardship, uh, when they're ready to go, physically and spiritually, and... Um, uh, one is constantly trying to, uh, you know, try anything in the world they can think of to look, gain another minute of life or five minutes or ten minutes of life, but at great hardship and great, great, uh, shall I say, pain and suffering to them. There comes a time when that would be a cruel thing to do. Now, <clears throat> since you mentioned the DNR, I mean, you were talking about an actual form that is filled out here. Uh, with check boxes and all the rest. One has to look at those very carefully. <clears throat> because um, you have to remember, we, we always have to remember that doctors and nurses are going to read those and go uh, according to them, uh, we think, and how they interpret them. And you're going to find that various doctors might interpret them differently. Uh, is this a problem as to how those things are going to be interpreted? Well, sometimes there are things written down there that we cannot agree to. I mean, sometimes it just says <coughs> that we're going to withhold nutrition and hydration from a patient if we determine that it serves no good purpose. Well, what that means is if we determine their quality of life is not what we think they would want or what we would want, uh, then we're going to stop giving them nutrition and hydration and cause their deaths. Well, we can't sign that. What was being said about uh, Terry Schiavo was, well, would you want to live that way? Well, I wouldn't want to live that way. Well, of course I wouldn't want to live that way, and you wouldn't want to live that way. I mean, they said that she was in a permanent vegetative state, or a persistent vegetative but the, there, there was really a question about that, because she was responding, clearly. She was responding to uh, various loved ones, and so on, so that uh, uh, PF or whatever they were calling it, that a PVS, that was very much contrived, evidently, okay? And um, they've even had people come out of uh, states like that, that, when they were clinically diagnosed as being in that state, they've come out of it. They, they've come back to uh, 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 consciousness. Like, evidently, she was conscious. There's plenty of reason to believe that Terry Schreiber was conscious. But even those who uh, show no signs of responsiveness have revived. Um, thus kind of giving the lie that there's no hope for these people, and no matter what we do, it's not going to really help them, so we might as well just cause them to die. 
by starving them to death or dehydrating to death. One cannot agree to anything like that in a form. <clears throat> so if it says outright, right, uh, essentially, um, if they reach a state that, um, you know, we, we, we think that they would not want to live, uh, or somebody's going to interpret for them whether they want to live or not in that state, so we're just going to starve them to death or dehydrate them to death, we cannot agree to that. That's why I recommend to people that they do not sign a living will, but they uh, provide for a, a power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, a health care power of attorney. You know, I mean, they're referred to by different names in different states. But that is an actual person who can speak for them when they can't speak for themselves. A person who can authorize certain treatments, refuse certain treatment, depending upon the morality of the church, of their faith, and what that person would want done. There are certain things that we have no power to refuse, and that is if there's a, an ordinary medical treatment that can, truly that can truly preserve life and get one through, let's say, a crisis situation so there's actually some benefit to that treatment. We have no right to refuse that. And no one has any right to refuse giving it to us. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, there are certain uh, procedures and treatments that are extraordinary. And they can be extraordinary because of the cost, the uh, great hardship, because of the pain and suffering they would inflict, because they're experimental and they're unproven. And there's really no... Um, no certainty or, you know, even reasonable expectation uh, that they will benefit us. And, well, we don't have an obligation to take those. But we could have an obligation, we could have a right to demand them, and if we want them, then others would have an obligation to give them, to provide them for us, insofar as it is reasonably possible. But they shouldn't be forcing on us treatments that are extraordinary that we wouldn't want. Any more than they can be denying things that are ordinary treatments that we should have. Right? Uh, if you have a health care power of attorney, a person you trust, to know the moral law of the church and to stand up for you and answer for you when the time comes and sign off on treatments for you, that's a very valuable thing to have. Mm -hmm. For some reason, though, the medical community these days uh, likes uh, a living will and a medical power of attorney. And I'm, okay, I'm not sure how they reconcile the two of them. I'm sure they do somehow. But we have a sheet having been checked out as to what you want. Then we have this living person here who can speak for you. What happens if there's a contradiction? You know, who prevails? Um, it's, it's, it's an issue that I can't really solve offhand, and neither can you. Um, but uh, the, of the two, I would definitely say having an, a living person who can answer for you and make the decisions for you as to your treatment, that's a very important thing to do. Mm -hmm. Just make sure that they have the faith they will consult the traditional Catholic priest in, in questions of doubt, and uh, that they will, in fact, stand up for what they know you want, and what you want is according to the moral law of God. Right, definitely. 
That doesn't answer the whole question. I mean, it's a very deep. I'm, I'm actually going through situations that have come up in the course of the years and just trying to kind of factor them all in here. Um, but uh, I would say that question is going to play a part in everyone's life insofar as everyone is going to have to uh, go through the medical treatment uh, scenario or take care of someone who is facing these things. Yeah. So that that is a very, very important question. Yeah, definitely. Well, Father, let's move on to a couple other topics here. We have um, all kinds of emails to get to. And I thought that uh, that this would be an interesting one to discuss here. And this viewer asks how you feel about the fact that all of the deceased Vatican II popes have either been canonized or beatified since Francis has taken over. Do you think all of this is a deliberate attempt to canonize Vatican II? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, as, uh, as the Democrats and the Republicans like to say about the opponents, everything is politically motivated. Well, in the case of the modernists, yes, it is politically motivated. It is a, uh, a PR ploy uh, to um, basically uh, canonize modernism. Uh, they're having trouble with Paul VI because he was so uh, radical as a modernist, and there are many other things, many other things about him that are highly, I should say, questionable. Uh, and I won't, I won't say any more than that because we'd like this to be sort of a family program. But in any case, uh, even the modernists, are, even Francis is having trouble moving Paul VI uh, to, uh, to sainthood, okay, uh, in modernist heaven, uh, which is uh, very warm. Uh, <laughs> But uh, in any case, um, so they, they have, some have been beatified by Francis, some have been canonized by Francis. And um, um, who knows, by the time we're done, Francis might just canonize himself and get it over with. <laughs> they said that exact thing. Oh, perhaps, is that right? Perhaps Francis will try to canonize himself next. <laughs> okay, I mean, why not? <clears throat> I mean, he canonized himself on, just on the verge, on the basis of his own humility. Yeah. <laughs> of, of his exceeding humility. But, um, yeah, it, it's not, the, it, it makes a mockery of the whole idea of what sanctity is makes a mockery of the, pro the church's pro uh, process, even, of determining, you know, who led a, led a holy life and was faithful to God. It, it is a typical modernist mockery of the traditional faith. Yeah, definitely. And uh, our dear lady sees that happen right now. In fact, um, <clears throat> I, this might seem like an awful thing to say, but I'm mean, sorry, it's the truth. You know, when you go into the grottos under the Vatican and you see, you know, John the Twenty-Third's tomb there, and you realize, you know, he's encased in, in th three concentric uh, tubes, basically, of uh, polymer, and, and filled with argon gas to try to preserve him. Um, this is, a, again, a, a caricature 
of the incorruptibility of the saints. And it reminds you of Lenin's tomb. I mean, it reminds you of what the communists do to somehow um, give a veneer of, of some supernatural preservation to their communist leaders. You know, this is what the communists did <clears throat> with their... Uh, with their just devilish terrorist uh, tyrants. Uh, you know, to see this happening now with the modernists is not really, it is not surprising. We would expect that this is exactly what they would do if they could. Um, so, uh, but there, there are plenty of people in the world who, who have enough, I mean, even just common sense, let alone faith, to recognize <clears throat> that uh, John the Twenty Third um, and the modernists who followed him do not meet the Catholic definition of sanctity and hero a life of heroic sanctity. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but it's true. Yep. All right, Father. Then next email here. This year says that uh, in several recent programs we've we've mentioned the questions of the CMRI and the and the Took line. <clears throat> And this viewer says that they uh, received an email from a friend who is sympathetic to the Took line. And this friend believes that the Society of St. Pius V is too rigoristic and unjust in its application of church law concerning these subjects by adhering to the letter of the law while setting aside the spirit. Uh, they say a, a couple of principles apply here. One is that necessity makes licit what is illicit. And another one, it is certain that one sins against the rule who adheres to the letter and leaves aside the spirit. How would you respond to those claims? I would say that they're wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'd say that they're, they're just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the matter of the validity of the sacraments, we're not talking about, well, the difference of the spirit and the letter here. We're just trying to follow the Catholic Church's own teachings mm -hmm. and her mandates as to what we as Catholics can do and can't do. And we're dealing with matters of the validity of the sacraments. We're dealing with matters that are a difference between sacrilege, the valid re reception of the sacrament, and sacrilege. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sacrilege is not the spirit of the law. And invalid sacraments are not the spirit of the law. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, we're not, in other words, what that writer is referring to is it doesn't have anything to do with, with the concerns we have with regard to the two bishops. Because the concerns we have with regard to the two clergy are not negotiable in the sense that either they're right or they're wrong. Um, so that, I mean, there's no difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law in this case, where the church says that you, you cannot use probabilism or even probabiliarism when it comes to the, to the, to the validity of the sacraments. Uh, you have to be, you know, have, have the certitude that the church herself can give uh, with regard to the validity of the sacraments. You can't play fast and loose with the sacraments. This is why we're not Novus Ordo. We see what they've done with that. We reject that. Um, and, uh, I, you know, that's why, in my mind, if you're going to go along with the Turk bishops, then you might as well just go along with the Novus Ordo anyway. <clears throat> because uh, you have there, at the very root of the Turk bishop line, you have a, a serious problem with the validity. Uh, such that those who are supporting the two bishops uh, uh, have come up with arguments that simply do not hold water and can demonstrably can be shown 
they can be shown that they don't apply. They come up with false arguments. Like that I mentioned the one argument that they employ saying, well, the sacramental theologians and moral theologians say that uh, if a ceremony is performed, if you acknowledge that a ceremony is performed, you have to admit that it's valid. You presume it's valid until you can prove it's not valid. And they've made a lot of hay with that particular argument because they have deceived people. Uh, maybe they've deceived themselves. Maybe they actually believe this. But, you know, I, I simply point out that all of the references they make to support that argument are talking about, and I know I've said this many times, uh, um, they, they're talking about ceremonies that are performed by Catholic prelates, Catholic bishops and archbishops and so on, in the official capacity they have as representing the traditional Catholic Church uh, in, in their role as archbishops and bishops and ordinaries of dioceses. In other words, they prefer, they've, they've uh, had these ceremonies, sacramental ceremonies, conferred these sacraments according to the canonical procedures that are set down for Catholic bishops and archbishops in consecrating other bishops and ordaining priests and so on. And when we're talking about what Archbishop Took did, and even what, what Archbishop Bishop Lefebvre did and, and Bishop Mendes did. They, what they did was not according to the canonical capacity that was assigned to them. Uh, they took it upon themselves, and rightly so, I believe, Bishop Lefebvre and Bishop Mendes, uh, to consecrate bishops, <coughs> ordain priests, in spite of the modernist authorities. But they were not acting in terms, uh, as let's say, being the archbishop of this diocese or the bishop of that diocese or the, um, the head of this religious order when they consecrated these traditional bishops, traditional priests. And uh, so in that case, I mean, you, you don't have the, the guarantee of the church that would come when you have a, like the archbishop of a diocese who ordains the graduating class from his seminary of that year. When that happens, he's officially functioning as the Roman Catholic Archbishop of a particular diocese of the Church, and you have the guarantee of the Church concerning the validity of those ordinations. And when a Roman Catholic Archbishop, for example, is ordaining, is consecrating a bishop, two other bishops in the Church, he's performing that ceremony canonically according to his official capacity as a representative of the Roman Catholic Church. And you have the guarantee of the church that that is a valid consecration. <clears throat> when, you, when you look at the consecrations and the ordinations performed by traditional Catholic bishops who are not acting in that official capacity, like the head of the diocese, the ordinary of the diocese, and so on, <clears throat> you, you need the, the proofs for the ceremonies. Um, you don't just, the church doesn't say you just assume that they're valid because they formed ceremony. That's not the way the church functions. You know? And in Archbishop Turk's case, you have an altogether unique situation where he was consecrating non-Catholics. When you have somebody who's consecrating non-Catholics, there's an automatic excommunication for which there is absolutely no possible justification for consecrating non-Catholics. Uh, as opposed to the consecrations done by Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop Mendez, uh, you know, with the consecrations done by Archbishop Took, consecrating non-Catholics, there's no possible justification 
that would prevent that that law of the church from applying to him, that he was excommunicated for doing these things, unless he was not acting in his right mind. Mm -hmm. And that would absolve him of responsibility. So, uh, you know, the, the consecrations done by Archbishop Took are definitely subject to question, serious question, are definitely doubtful, at least one can say that, but are definitely not Catholic either, insofar as there is an, a, 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 a bona fide uh, manifest provision in the church law excommunicating, excommunicating, excommunicating someone who does something like that automatically. And uh, why that would not apply to him, no one, no one argues. I mean, I've never heard anyone arguing why that would not apply to Archbishop Took for what he did in consecrating non-Catholics. They don't even try to make an argument about it. And as far as the distinction of when a, a bishop is acting canonically in his official capacity as representative of the Roman Catholic Church, um, as opposed to, to one just doing what he believes is necessary provide the sacraments for the people, uh, the traditional sacraments, but acting on his own accord. Again, I've never heard any pro-took uh, person argue about that difference, and that distinction. They just choose to ignore that because it doesn't serve their purpose. That, to me, is a very big red flag. That uh, there, this is not simply a matter of... Uh, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. That's a very big mistake to think about that. You know, people can abuse that argument, and I think that's an abuse of that argument. People abuse that argument with regard to abortion. You know, the letter of the law, yeah, I mean, you can't kill a baby, but the spirit of the law, look, you know, this baby's going to, going to be born in poverty, maybe starve to death, have some terrible disease, die uh, an early death, you know. So the spirit of the law is, you know, charity means we should kill the baby, right? Uh, I mean, people argue this about homosexuality. Well, yeah, it's not quite right. But as they're arguing now in the Novus Ordo, but you know, there are some actually good, healthy byproducts that sort of, there are some good features to it, you know? So the spirit of the law means that we kind of go along with it. You can abuse that argument, and I think that is an abuse of the argument. Mm -hmm. This is, it seems quite the cop-out, too, to, just, uh, to uh, try and apply this principle. Necessity makes licit what is illicit. That seems like uh, you could apply that to just about anything. Well, there are not the necessary limitations to that. <laughs> yeah. Necessity does not uh, make, make everything. everything licit. Yeah. I mean, this is what Francis is saying in Amoris Laetitia. There's yeah. nothing intrinsically evil. Yeah. So to have a traditional Catholic making an argument like that is actually, actually kind of scary. <laughs> you know, they're thinking like Francis in this regard. There's nothing that is intrinsically evil, yeah. and there's nothing that can't somehow be justified. Yeah. All right. Well, another email, Father. This viewer says that uh, I've been lis watching, listening to what Catholics believe, and heard Father say that Protestants are called and considered to be Christians. I'm a convert to the Catholic Church from the Lutheran sect, and 99% of my relatives are some type of Protestant sect. I can tell you that the majority of Protestants don't think that Catholics are Christians. I do agree with Father that there are some Protestants that act more as Catholics that act more as Catholics should act. But also, even those who do lead a good life, they are still heretics and reject the Church founded by Jesus Christ. Can Father please give me some quotes where the Church says that Protestant heretics are Christians? 
The church in the past has referred to those who are validly baptized as Christiani, okay? Um, so, um, even in her law, she makes provisions um, for this, okay? She even makes the distinction between, um, uh, let's say, a, a, a uh, prohibiting impediment to marriage and an invalidating or uh, uh, an invalidating, uh, let's just say, uh, impediment to marriage. Uh, as far as whether you're marrying a Catholic is marrying a non-Catholic who's baptized, a Catholic who's marrying somebody who's not baptized at all. Okay? So the church actually does make a distinction there. But uh, the fact is, I mean, it's, you might say we're arguing a matter of semantics here, okay? Look, the one true faith is the, the traditional Catholic faith. That is the one true faith. We know that. Um, do I consider those who, are, uh, who do not have the traditional Catholic faith, do I consider them to be Christians? <clears throat> not, not in the strict sense of the, of the term, uh, because I do not believe they believe in Christ as he really is and his teachings as they really are. Okay, And so that is my, my understanding of them. Right? But the fact is that there are those who uh, do believe in Christ insofar as they know him. And uh, I, I think back to uh, Pope Pius X in uh, Cherbonibis, uh, the encyclical of Cherbonibis, when he actually says there, there are many Catholics who are so igno ignorant of the faith that they do not even know enough of the faith to, to save their souls. But he still refers to them as Catholics because they're baptized Catholics. And yet, he says, they do not have enough knowledge of the faith to even be saved. Now, that's kind of a bold statement there, you know. But one can go back to St. Pius X's own words in the Chabodides and read those words. But he's talking about the ignorance of the Catholics about their faith. So, uh, you know, the fact that we refer to uh, you know, so many people as being Christians, we don't mean that they are... Uh, being faithful to the Church of, of Christ, the one true Catholic Church, we don't mean they have the Catholic faith. Um, but there are prayers which are in the Recolta that uh, the Church herself has given to us that refer to the Christian faith, believe it or not. I mean, they're, they're approved by the Church. They're indulgence prayers. Uh, I prefer to use the term the Catholic faith there. But there are indulgence prayers in the Recolta that actually have that referring to the Christian faith. We'd be faithful to that, okay? The church, when she means what she speaks that speaks that, she is referring to the Catholic faith, obviously. Right? Because that is what she considers and knows to be the one true faith of Christ. Okay. But uh, you know, it, the church traditionally has not denied the name, including in the name of Christians, those who are validly baptized. And the church has herself, in the course of time, acknowledged that baptism can be and an, is in fact in cases valid by outside the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. by non-Catholic ministers who validly confer that sacrament. And uh, she has actually um, anathematized those who deny that. Right? So, um, you know, again, I understand what this uh, person is writing here. I understand their point. And I would say, 
I, I agree with their point to a point, okay, <laughs> to a point. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I think we have to uh, look at how the church uses the term Christian mm -hmm. herself, okay? And, um, in fact, she does at times use use that term to refer to all of those who are validly baptized. Look, there are those who are members of the Catholic faith who are not going to be saved, right? <clears throat> and one could, you know, proceed beyond that argument to say, well, this really only refers to those who are actually in the state of grace who should be called Christians. Right? And there are those who actually took it to that point. You know? And they even come up with some kind of invisible church. Uh, and that's the concept the church is, the church is condemned. Um, but without faith, it is impossible to please God, we know. And that means without the virtue of faith. But the fact is that there are Catholics today who have the virtue of faith, who don't necessarily know all the doctrines of the faith because they're so poorly instructed. The Church herself has acknowledged that in the past. Pope Pius XII, Pope Pius X acknowledged that. So uh, I just don't want to contradict St. Pius X and other popes before, and other uh, you know writings of the Catholic Church in which they uh, refer to Christians as being those who are baptized, even if they are not actually members of the Church, because they have placed themselves outside the Church. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then, last last email here, Father. I thought this was an interesting question. Ms. Beaver would like to know, has there ever been a doctrine of the faith which has been renounced before? Has the Catholic Church ever found one of her doctrines to be wrong and, in a sense, changed her mind? Uh, not until the modernists uh, <laughs> invaded the Church, hijacked the institution of the Church, and uh, started speaking as though they were the Church. No, no. Um, there, are, there's, there are those who might say, well... There are examples of the church changing her mind about her teaching, let's say, on usury, mm -hmm. uh, taking interest, yeah. right, <laughs> on, uh, on a loan. Um, but, you know, if, if, and again, superficially, one might say, like, I think superficially you get some answers that are off base, I think. Superficially, one might say, well, in fact, the church did condemn all taking of interest at one point, and now the church does not. And so, um, <clears throat> I mean, insofar as we use credit cards and have bank accounts and, uh, and earn interest, however slight, uh, um, savings accounts and, and checking accounts, we are all guilty of usury. The church hasn't condemned it. I mean, <clears throat> going back before Vatican II, uh, the church did have investments, okay? And yes, there was profit to that. So the profit motive is not evil in itself. Um, but the question of usury and credit and charging interest, the fact is that the um, what is properly called capitalism, the free enterprise system, uh, whatever you, you want, to, want to call that, uh, sees that money itself as a medium of exchange has taken on a character it didn't have before. And the church always condemned usury, um, as for example, when it was a matter of <clears throat> the, the taking advantage of those who, who were in necessity and didn't have the means 
even to survive and needed to borrow money for food, clothing, and shelter, and taking advantage of people like that, yeah, that is contemptible. And, um, but the fact is that when you see money itself as a, as a commodity and a means to, um, to, produce, to produce something that wasn't there before, for example, someone an invention who wants to take it to market, <clears throat> and uh, someone who has the money at hand and, and could use it for another purpose, but actually allows another person to use it for his purpose, and there's a certain risk he's taking for it. The church never said that it was immoral to compensate somebody for a certain risk he was taking, or taking the value of something that he could have used for one purpose and turn it to another, to produce something of value that wasn't there before. Uh, the church does not condemn that in principle, and does acknowledge that, yeah, there can be some compensation for that. Call it interest, if you will. But it's merely a comp compensation for a risk that another person takes with what he has, investing it in producing something good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Father, I thought we could end with this, uh, these comments of, of Vladimir Putin here, where I know we wanted to get to those where he said that... Uh, communist ideology is similar to Christianity and uh, referred to, to Lenin's remains as the saintly relics and compared them to Christ. So do you have any comments on that? Well, yes. I, I, in fact, through the agency of our, our good uh, friend Jorge here, our, our assistant, noble assistant here, uh, I have this article that I'd seen before. Um, but uh, this copy um, we owe to the good services of a fine gentleman. And uh, this actually was published by RT, which is the uh, kind of English, uh, one might say, propaganda organ <laughs> for um, Russia right now. Um, here's what it says, this article entitled, Putin colon, Communist Ideology Similar to Christianity. Lenin's body-like saintly relics. Okay. And I'll, I'll quote from the article. Russian President Vladimir Putin has likened communism <clears throat> to Christianity and Vladimir Lenin's mausoleum in Moscow's Red Square to the veneration of the relics of saints. And then they quote Putin. Maybe I'll say something that, somehow might, that someone might dislike, but that's the way I see it. This was in an interview given to Balaam uh, for a documentary. And uh, the excerpt was broadcast on Russia 1. Quote, First of all, faith has always accompanied us, becoming stronger every time our country, our people, have been led through hard times. There were those years of militant atheism when priests were eradicated, churches destroyed, but at the same time, a new religion was being created. Communist ideology is very similar to Christianity. In fact, freedom, equality, brotherhood, justice, everything is laid out in the Holy Scripture. It's all there. And the code of the builder of communism, this is sublimation. It's just such a primitive excerpt from the Bible. Nothing new was invented. Now, there are those today... <clears throat> 
who want to tell us that Putin is kind of an emblematic of the conversion of Russia, that Putin, in a sense, is leading the way, that he's actually a very devout Christian, okay, and uh, that he's not really at heart a communist at all, okay. Now, I've always been at least skeptical about that, because he was the leader of the East German Stasi, okay, the secret police, and which is an extremely brutal, was an extremely brutal organization uh, in cruelly repressing any opposition to communism. So to think that this man has somehow undergone a kind of metanoia now that he's just sort of grown out of communism into Christianity, quote-unquote, um, no, I don't see it that way. <clears throat> he's a brutal repressor of um, those who stand in his way, uh, there are a lot of questions about assassinations that have gone on around the world uh, for those who have opposed him, right? Lots of very serious questions about it. Um, now, ironically, uh, Vladimir Putin um, met um, Francis and pronounced to the world that he is not a man of God, at least not the God of the Christians. That's what Putin says about him. But... Francis has said that communism, that communists are actually Catholics. Communists are actually Catholics because they understand the central meaning of the gospel, and that is the poor. Compassion for the poor, upholding the poor, protecting the poor, and the rights of the poor. That's what Christianity is all about, according to Francis. So to hear Francis say that communists are actually secret Christians... <clears throat> Because, I mean, the, 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 the implication is because communism is actually secret Christianity. The principles are the same. And then to hear Putin, who says that Francis is not really a man of God, saying essentially the same thing, that communism is a form of primitive biblical Christianity. That's very revealing. Um... There are those who actually would like to, would, would try to liken the vow of poverty taken by Catholic religious to Marxism and uh, communism and, and the, uh, the withering way of the state, the uh, denial of private property, you know, that there is even a right to private property. And I've even heard traditional Catholics try to make that argument. But they're overlooking the fact that Catholic theology and the taking of a vow of poverty presupposes the right to private property, requires the right to private property. <clears throat> because you couldn't take a vow renouncing that right unless there was a right to begin with. You had to have the right to private property in order to be willing to give it up voluntarily out of love for God. So communism, Marxism, and Catholicism, in, in that, in, right on down the line, are the polar opposites of each other. And in particular, this matter of the denial of a right to private property by the Marxists, and the absolute affirmation of the right to private property, but the willingness to give it up for the supernatural motive of, of charity as a sacrifice to God and for the service of one's fellow man, 
Um, those are two opposite things entirely. The one says we are going to crush the right to private property um, by force, and anyone who stands in our way is going to wind up in the gulag, and or dead. And to offer that as a supererogatory means of sanctification, meaning it's more than Christ asks of you, but he will give you the grace to make that offering of your God-given right to private property as a sacrifice out of, out of uh, divine love. T- two absolutely opposite things. You know? Putin doesn't understand that. It's sad to say there are traditional Catholics who don't even understand that. But for him to say that communist ideology is similar to Christianity actually has its roots in biblical Christian, you know, Bible and so on, is an outrage. It, it's, it shows that either this man is grossly dishonest or he hasn't the slightest concept of what Christianity really is. You know? but the, when I say Christianity, I mean the real teaching of Christ. That's what I really mean. <laughs> okay, and then for him to, to liken this, you know, it's funny, we were talking about John the Twenty Third's body encased in this argon atmosphere to try to keep him looking like he's not decaying, right? Um, to give some mystique around him and around the modernism uh, that he professed, that he served. It says here, after Lenin died in 1924, his body was embalmed and put on display in a mausoleum in Red Square, Moscow. The cult of Lenin was part of Soviet ideology. The public debate about the possibility of giving Lenin's remains a proper burial began during the early days of perestroika in the 1980s. But this is what Putin said. Look, Lenin was put in a mausoleum. How is this different from the relics of saints for Orthodox, with a capital O, right? Because he stands for Russian Orthodoxy. Orthodox Christians, and just for Christians. I guess he's talking about generic Christianity there. When they say that there's no such tradition in Christianity, well, how come... Go to Athos and take a look. There are the relics of saints there. And we have holy relics here. So, in other words, uh, for him to compare the relics of saints to Lenin uh, lying in his, in his mausoleum, it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, to say that this man is leading some kind of resurgence of a conversion of Russia to Christianity is, is absurd. Um, he's not. Okay, and it's dangerous to think he is. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are those who would like to say that Russia is converted or is being converted, and um, this re- this has to do with um, the question of Russia whether Russia has been consecrated as Our Lady demanded at Fatima. It has not. Okay. Not as Our Lady demanded. Um, and um, although Pius XII personally did that, officially, actually, with his apostolic letter addressed to the peoples of all Russia, um, nonetheless, when Our Lady asked in 1929 that the Holy Father, in union with all the bishops of the world, would consecrate Russia, that has not been done. And as we know, after uh, 1942, um, 
the request became that we all must consecrate ourselves to. The Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart, right? But in any, in any case, uh, Tom, um, there, there's a, a dangerous um, error circ- circulating now, and it's not an accident. I mean, Putin is putting out, is playing the role. Okay, he's playing the role of a Christian. He doesn't know what that means, or maybe he does, and he's trying to do what Francis is doing. He's trying to draw an equivalent between communism, Marxism, socialism, and Christianity. That is exactly what Francis is doing in the Vatican right now. Father, I, uh, once upon a time, I, I in the uh, discount bookstore, I saw a, a copy of the Communist Manifesto, and in the introduction to that, the, uh, the person that, that wrote the introduction, they, they say something along the lines of, like all sacred texts, just as the Bible or anything else, this Communist Manifesto, it, it has its own uh, passages that are hard to describe, hard to, to distinguish and expound upon. And it seems that that was a, a common theme, a common goal of uh, communism to kind of um, give this supernatural character to it and kind of raise it to the level of like a Catholicism, a, super, a supernatural religion. But it seems that there was um, never much could be much success with that strategy <coughs> until you had the modernist invasion of the Catholic Church, where now, where we don't have necessarily, I mean, we still have Putin and, and the communists still trying to affect that strategy, but now they have uh, their their cohorts in the Vatican now who are helping them out by taking the supernatural religion of Catholicism and dumbing it down to be a merely natural religion. And so here we have these two sides kind of working towards the same goal. We have these communists trying to trying to give the supernatural character to their religion and the supposed Catholics in the Vatican are giving a natural character to their religion and they're both working towards the exact same end. Well, Putin would like to, and others like him would like to try to raise Marxism, socialism, mm-hmm. and let's say Kashi communism, but socialism, um, with a cherry on top, basically, you know, saying that at the end we'll have universal socialism, which will then mysteriously morph into worldwide communism and the communist paradise. Mm-hmm. But the way to get to that communist paradise is to have absolute socialism dominating the entire world. Okay, so that's the practicality of the matter. And Putin does go for that. I mean, this is what he stands for, the socialism of Marx. He will not renounce Marxism. He certainly will not renounce socialism. He wants to raise it to the level of a religion. But at the same time, modernism wants to degrade Catholicism from the level of a religion to the level of an ideology. It is dragging it down, as you say to the level of a a, a kind of a natural thing. That's what modernism does. That's modernism's whole shtick, saying that it was natural for us human beings to have this religious sense and this longing for the divine, and this gives rise to us having faith experiences. That's where Catholicism came from. That's where the experience of Jesus we have came from. Okay, this faith experience of Jesus um, the modernist line would therefore take Catholicism at any given moment to the experience of mankind at, at the moment, a quasi-religious experience, but which we would have to say really amounts to nothing more than really an ideology. The current 
idea of mankind as to what God is or should be, what they're willing to believe of God. And whether they use the name God or not, uh, they don't mean what we mean. <laughs> we mean the God who has been revealed to us primarily through the very second person of the Blessed Trinity, God's own divine Son here on earth, who he has seen me, has seen the Father, right? As our Lord said. That's Almighty God, the one true God as we know him to be, and he has, as he has revealed himself. And there are a lot of others who refer to God, but that, that, that word does not mean what you and I mean by God. We, can't be this, we should not be deceived by that. <clears throat> well, in the same way, when with, here when he's talking about Christianity, we should not be deceived, okay, that this has any connection with the... Look what he says here. He talks about freedom, equality, brotherhood, justice. Freemasonry stands for all those things, you know. And again, Freemasonry wants to make the argument, well, I mean, essentially this is the same as Christianity, right? We're all the same, but again, ideology. So uh, we, as traditional Catholics, are not allowing the modernists to degrade Catholicism to the level of an ideology, and Christ to the mere level of an ideologue. That's, that's what modernism would try to do. And um, that's, that's where uh, Putin, with his Marxism and so-called communist ideology, is working to bring the two of them onto the same level. So, so he's got his job to do in this, and Francis has his job to do, and actually they are they're working toward the same goal. Yep, definitely. Well, I think that's, that's it for tonight, Father. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank well, you we you're discussed. welcome, Tom. I appreciate your time, too. Yeah, I think we, we, we covered a lot tonight, a lot of practical advice and a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff, so thank you. Thank you well, I, I hope so. Uh, there are times when, uh, uh, as you know, there's so much more that could be said about these questions, Always. and I don't know, uh, at times I hope I'm being clear enough, you know, but... Uh, I trust that if I'm not, you know, the, the readers are not going to allow me to, uh, any peace until they get a straight <laughs> and a clear answer to that question. So, um, uh, um, you know, I just invite them to uh, to write in and uh, to give us no peace. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks to all our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.